Four years ago, Labour was at an all-time low. Jeremy Corbyn had led the party to its worst general election defeat since 1935. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. And Boris Johnson had led the Conservatives to a thumping victory. But four years is a very, very long time in politics. And now Keir Starmer is capturing safe Tory seat after safe Tory seat in by-elections across the country. He has not only won here, he's made history here. Armed with a consistently large lead in the opinion polls, Starmer's party looks closer to power than it has done for 13 long years. But with many voters effectively now looking over Rishi Sunak's shoulder, more and more people are asking a blunt question. What would Labour actually do? This special iPodcast series, Inside Labour's Plan for Power, is all about that question. We'll talk to independent experts about what Labour could do in office and to politicians about what it should do. And we'll hear from the people writing Labour policy and who'll sit in Starmer's first cabinet if he wins power. I'm Paul War, Chief Political Commentator of The Eye, the only national newspaper that has never supported a political party. We tell it straight and hold all the politicians to account. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and this podcast is no different. This episode is the NHS and your health. What will Labour do to get waiting lists down? How will they make it easier to see your local GP? Will their priority be reform rather than new money? Can they usher in a new era of industrial peace in the NHS? We may well say, oh, well, you can't keep on putting more money into the NHS. Well, the truth is, because it's been starved of so much, unfortunately for Rachel Reeves, that's going to cost a jolly sight more than £1.1 they need to listen to nurses. I don't think we can say that our members wouldn't go out on strike under a Labour government, not by any stretch of the imagination. And we'll hear from West Streeting himself. I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that one person sat behind one desk in the Department for Health and Social Care can be the saviour of the National Health Service. I do not have a messiah complex. The health, health service started in an atmosphere of friction, of controversy, of doubt, and of great hopes. A vast amount of silent good work, great deal of relief, and a great deal of gratitude. And I believe in Great Britain, we have made a great start. Just a year after the creation of the NHS by the Labour government in 1948, Health Minister Nye Bevan was proud of the progress made, but under no illusions about the scale of the tasks still ahead. 75 years later, there's still a vast amount of silent good work by staff and a great deal of gratitude from patients. But after the turbulence of the Covid pandemic and unprecedented strike action by doctors, nurses and others, that atmosphere of friction is perhaps the greatest it's been since the NHS's birth. Keir Starmer's current narrative of national renewal harks back not just to the days of Clement Attlee, but also to Tony Blair. Back in 1997, amid record waiting lists for treatment, Blair famously used an eve of election speech to ram home how urgent the crisis in UK healthcare really was. 24 hours to save our National Health Service. 24 hours. 
in which we can decide how we're going to build that decent, that great British society of which we've dreamt. In 2010, David Cameron won power in part because he managed to reassure voters that the NHS was safe in his hands. Tony Blair once told us that his priorities could be summed up in three words. Education, education, education. I can do mine in three letters. N-H-S. And Boris Johnson repeatedly harnessed the nation's love of the NHS. First in the Brexit vote via his big red bus promise of more money, and secondly in a 2019 election that delivered him a large majority. I've heard it loud and clear from every corner of the country that the overwhelming priority of the British people now is that we should focus above all on the NHS. Johnson's promises of more nurses and 40 new hospitals have since proved controversial, to say the least. And Rishi Sunak's own big NHS promise to reduce waiting lists for people who need treatment is proving very difficult to deliver. With waiting lists rising to record levels, they're currently more than 7 million, Labour knows for many that the issue will be as big, if not bigger, than the economy at the next election. Keir Starmer has announced his ambition to reduce that list to zero within four years, partly through a plan to pay NHS staff £1 billion more in overtime to clear the backlog, with an extra 2 million operations, scans and appointments in the first year. The money would be found by forcing wealthy non-DOMs to pay UK taxes, Labour says. But will Labour's plan be enough? Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation, is blunt in his diagnosis. I don't think there's any great mystery about the challenge of waiting lists. You know, they started rising significantly a decade ago, and that's a direct consequence of the impact of austerity on the health service. I I love to have kind of complex and fascinating answers to questions, but I'm afraid this one is pretty simple. We need sustained investment in staffing, greater investment in capital. We kind of know what we need to do, but the reality is it's going to take quite some time. Anita Charlesworth is Director of Research and Economics at the Health Foundation, which recently warned that elective waiting lists are set to soar to 8 million next year. And the think tank found that doctor strikes were not the real cause of the problem. The waiting list for planned care is just one of many problems across the NHS. So we've got problems with emergency care, with people waiting in A&E. We've got huge issues coming out of the pandemic with access to mental health services. Wes Streeting told me that his plans to fund 2 million more hospital appointments, to double the funding of CT and MRI scanners, and to create an extra 700,000 extra dentistry appointments would make a noticeable difference to people's lives. I don't pretend that these aren't just first steps. They are exactly that, first steps. But we're determined to go into the next general election with a plan that is credible, fully costed and fully funded. And as resources allow, we will do more as we pursue our 10-year plan for health and social care. In our podcast on Labour's plans for the economy, Paul Johnson of the Institute for Fiscal Studies pointed out that the extra £1 billion would be a teeny-weeny fraction of the annual £180 billion budget for the NHS. Streeting was keen to push back. Well, I'm surprised the IFS have fallen into the trap of thinking that the only answer to the NHS's challenges is more money. 
the argument I've set out throughout my time as Shadow Health Secretary is that pouring ever-increasing amounts of taxpayers' money into a broken system is not going to get the NHS not you know, back on its feet and crucially fit for the future. And we've got to do that against the backdrop where the Tories have trashed the public finances. So frankly, even if Rachel Reeves had a complete personality transplant and suddenly became this big spending chancellor, the money simply isn't there. There's no shortage of things I'd like to do in, in the NHS and social care. The constraints are the state of the economy and the state of the public finances. He stresses that the lever of a national insurance rise that was used by Tony Blair in 2001 is no longer available. One of the things that Labour politicians instinctively understand because of the areas of the country we represent and actually because of our own personal backgrounds as well is that voters can't afford punitive tax rises. People on low and middle incomes have been clobbered by the Conservatives over the last 13 years. So we can't just reach for the solutions of the last Labour government and say, oh, we're just going to chuck up national insurance to fund the NHS because people can't afford it. Katie Bramall-Stainer of the British Medical Association says that while any new money is welcome, Labour's offer on waiting lists just feels like a drop in the ocean. The bottom line is paying more for out-of-hours work in hospitals is one thing, but you've only got one workforce. Doctors are already doing huge amounts of overtime uh, and cutting waiting lists is you're going to need more doctors we may well say oh well you can't keep on putting more money into the nhs well the truth is because it's been starved of so much this is what we see i suspect unfortunately for we're streeting and unfortunately for rachel reeves that's going to cost a jolly sight more than 1.1 billion since the 1950s, spending on the NHS has increased by an average of 3.6% per year in real terms. But that figure masks substantial variation between governments. Under Margaret Thatcher and John Major, the figure was 2.6% on average. Under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, it more than doubled to 5.5% above inflation. Then, under David Cameron, it plunged down again to 1.1%. But pressures on the system the rising numbers of older people, of rising obesity and rising drug prices mean that the spending demands often outstrip inflation. Anita Charlesworth of the Health Foundation says that what matters most is stability and certainty in funding. It's the NHS 75th anniversary this year, so it's this really sustained, long-term, enduring institution and yet we run it on an hour-by-hour, almost week-by-week model. And if you look at the funding over that history, it's boom and bust. And that volatility makes it really hard to plan services. It makes it really hard to run care efficiently. Almost certainly, if we were able to provide more stability of funding, we would find actually that we didn't need quite as much funding. Alan Milburn, Health Secretary under Tony Blair, suggests Labour needs to say more about its long-term funding plans for the NHS. The, the really critical thing that people forget about our time in office is that it wasn't just the scale of the resourcing, it was the visibility of resourcing over a period of time. And what you've had over these last 13 years, really, is stop-go funding. And the critical thing I found when I was doing the job is what people really needed was they needed line of sight, they needed visibility so that they could plan for change over a period of years. So one of the things 
I think a new government should think about. Of course, there'll be a question about the scale of funding, what, what's possible, etc. And I think that's going to be very difficult. But where it can be very clear with local healthcare systems is this is the amount of money that you're going to have, not just for one year, but over two, three or four years. So then they can plan for the changes that lie ahead. Capital spending to replace crumbling hospital buildings, ageing computer systems and life-saving scanners were all squeezed during the austerity years. Charlesworth says that investing in IT could make a big difference over time, but the health service needs to get its act together. There are still some bits of the NHS that are on paper with no infrastructure where it takes half an hour in the morning and five passwords to log in for a doctor to get basic information and they're spending large chunks of their day you know, trying to deal with ineffective, inefficient, clunky systems. Matthew Taylor says that lessons from the past should be learned. I was proud in many ways to be part of the... Labour government that brought waiting lists down so much, that achieved so much, that built so many hospitals. But, you know, there's no question that the IT initiative, the NHS IT initiative that Tony Blair drove was a, was a disaster. And it's not the only one. So we have made mistakes in the past. Wes Streeting tells the eye he noticed at a recent conference that countries as small as Albania appeared to be ahead of the UK on digitisation of public services. I listened to Albania talking about the way in which they have revolutionised public service delivery using technology. They're streets ahead of us here in the UK. Some NHS trusts, but a minority of NHS trusts are already using you know, smart data and back office systems to do bed occupancy management. In doing so, they are moving patients through hospital faster, getting patients a better service and saving huge amounts of taxpayers' money in the process. So I think there are some, there's some low-hanging fruit in this space. My frustration with the NHS is that examples like that one are the exception when they need to become the everyday. The NHS has more pilots than the RAF. What the NHS is terrible about is taking successful pilots and making sure they're adopted and rolled out right across the whole system. Rather than saying, well, look, this is just an obvious common sense thing to do, NHS England will say, well, well, let's just, um, let's just try it in one area and see how that goes. I mean, I think we need to put our foot on the accelerator here. When he was Health Secretary under Tony Blair, Alan Milburn certainly put his foot on the accelerator of reform of the NHS, creating self-governing foundation hospitals, using private providers to cut waiting lists and giving patients more choice over their hospital for treatment. The private sector, if anything, is probably bigger today than it was then in the UK and in England especially. And it would make absolute sense, in my view, to, to utilise the capacity and capabilities of the private sector to treat more NHS patients more quickly. Milburn also suggests that it's precisely because Labour is trusted with the NHS that it can win the permission of voters to reform in a way the Conservatives haven't even dared. You've had over the course of these last few years, you've had less choice and competition from successive Tory health secretaries than you had from a Labour health secretary. And why is that? Well, the way I put it is that the right of politics when it comes to NHS reform has the volition but lacks the permission. And usually it's the reverse for the left of politics, that it has the permission but lacks the volition. And then what happens is once in a generation, the two things come together. 
And that's what happened in 1997 with the new Labour approach to reforming the public services. And from what I see today, from both Wes and from Kia, I see exactly that same determination. But Andy Burnham, who was Health Secretary under Gordon Brown, put new limits on the amount of private sector work done within the NHS, says Labour should be wary of going back down the Blairite route. When he was in the job, he undid some Melbourne reforms, including making the public sector the preferred provider of NHS services, rather than putting any contracts out to private sector bidders. When it comes to reform, I mean, I'm certainly not, not against it, but I would caution against the kind of a reform with the connotations that it had in the last in the last Labour government. Sometimes people saw that as a byword for outsourcing or, or fragmentation of the of the system. For instance, you know, if you link housing and health much more closely together or education and health when it comes to kids being school ready and the, the health benefits that come from uh, children being ready to learn when they arrive when they arrive at school. That's the way to go. In the first five years of health devolution in Greater Manchester, we increased life expectancy faster than expected. And that was a study in The Lancet. And that happened most in our more deprived areas. That's the kind of reform that I would encourage the next Labour government to get into. More devolution, more ability for people to work in that in that way. I wouldn't go back to a sort of an old-style targets-based or outsourcing-based version of reform because I, I just think that was, while it had a time, it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be now. Milburn clearly disagrees on the issue of reform and the use of the private sector. So I asked him if he had one piece of advice for a new Labour health secretary, what would it be? Go further, go faster. Seriously? You know, change as a rule, in my experience always takes twice as long as you think. And particularly when you're trying to turn around what is an enormous super tanker of a care system, health and social care, you're having to influence you know, one and a half million people's behavior. And that's hard and it just takes time. And so that's why it's really important that Labour goes into not just the general election, but hopefully into office with a well thought out framework of policy so that it can really hit the ground running. And I think, you know, my biggest regret in a sense is that that is what we didn't do. And I remember this very well because when Tony Blair rang me to ask me to become the Minister of State, so sort of number two to Frank Dobson, who was the first Labour Health Secretary in the Blair government in 97, I asked him on the phone, what is it that you want me to do? And his reply, which is seared in my memory, is we need a health policy, Alan. Now, so for six months, we sort of worked on what was the health policy. The truth is, that should have happened in the previous six months or the previous 12 months, the previous 18 months. During the COVID pandemic, the weekly clap for carers became a ritual to thank NHS and social care staff. Yet many have since gone on strike in protest at their paying conditions. Patricia Marquis, England Director of the Royal College of Nursing, says that no solution to the NHS's problems can happen without its staff being better supported, paid and getting reinforcements. She says that the biggest problem is that the trauma of the pandemic came after a decade of underfunding and understaffing. And now skilled and experienced staff are leaving in droves. 
Sadly, we are seeing our people continuing to try to work harder and harder to cover the gaps. But when they get to the point of, I can't do this anymore, sadly, what they tend to do is is walk away um, entirely from the NHS or from the profession. The RCN says it wants the next government to commit to new legislation, making them accountable for safe staffing levels. But it also wants longer-term reform of the profession's pay and conditions. Anita Charlesworth agrees. We do need to make sure that pay is competitive. And we've had a decade in which real earnings have fallen in healthcare and any incoming government is going to have to have a policy for pay. And no one wants to have a policy on pay or talk about pay. And we have a long-term workforce plan for the health service which doesn't mention pay. It is the unmentionable at the moment. Pay matters because the largest area of day-to-day spending in the NHS is staff costs some 40% of its £180 billion spending. Labour has studiously avoided committing itself to any specific pay rises, although West Streeting has said that the nurses' demand last year for a 19% increase was obviously unaffordable. The RCN's Patricia Marquis says recruitment is still severely hamstrung by the Tory decision to scrap free tuition fees for nurses and midwives. What we want is is for tuition fees to be scrapped, but also for there to be a living maintenance grant, you know, not expecting people to live on the breadline and have to work. It's a tough degree. You know, much of it is in practice doing work. Um, So having another job on top of that is really, really difficult. So actually making being a nursing student attractive and having the staff in the workplace to be able to make those placements, your time in practice, enjoyable, but also a really good learning experience are really critical. So again, we go back to that vicious cycle that the problem we need to solve first is retention. We need to keep everybody, every single nurse in this country who's on that register is a precious diamond and whatever government needs to look after them to make sure they stay in that workforce to give us a hope of bringing in those new ones to be able to to follow in our footsteps. West Streeting sounds sympathetic but refuses to make any promises. The arguments that myself, the Royal College of Nursing, the Royal College of Midwives and many, many others were making at the time was if you scrap the NHS bursary, you are going to harm recruitment from cohorts of students that tend to make up those courses, particularly mature students, particularly women. And those people bring with them a whole range of professional and life experience that make them really great nurses, midwives and and health professionals. All of the warnings that we made came to pass. Now, I mean, I'd love to sit here and say, well, don't worry, we're going to reverse all of that and we'll go even further in the area of student finance. But the moral of the story is it's a lot easier to cut these things than it is to replace them and bring them back. Of course, the story of the NHS over the past year has been of a rolling series of unprecedented strikes. The Royal College of Nursing's Patricia Marquis says the genie is out of the bottle when it comes to her own union taking industrial action. And she says that a Labour health secretary and chancellor shouldn't take nurses for granted. 
I think it is a change that there's no going back from. It took us 106 years in England to get to that point of, of our members voting to take strike action. But I don't think we'll be going back for another 106 years to, to not, you know, contemplating that again. We went into the pandemic with at least 40,000 vacancies. The experiences of the pandemic for nursing staff was, was devastating. You know, in the fear that they lived in of taking in the early days the virus home to their families, that the lack of respect, the lack of PPE, and nursing pay is still not at a level, anywhere near the level it needs to be to really make it an attractive profession. Whichever party, they need to listen to nurses. I don't think we can say that our members wouldn't take go out on strike um, under a Labour government, not by any stretch of the imagination. It's up to our members what they choose to vote. We're not affiliated to the TUC. We're not affiliated to any political party. What matters is that nurses and patients are getting what they need. And that is what will drive our members, regardless of the colour of rosette that the party's wearing. But Alan Milburn says that any health secretary has to be firm on strikes. Well, sometimes you do end up, believe me, in fights if you're the health secretary. <laughs> and not just with the union, sometimes with your own party. We've got to be very clear about what the bottom lines are. And look, I think it is just unacceptable that you have people going on strike in the National Health Service who are senior clinicians doing an important job of work for, for, for patients. And, you know, you've got to be clear about what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable behaviours. And sometimes the BMA, frankly, don't do themselves any favours and don't do their members any favours either. The BMA's Katie Bramall-Stainer insists the union won't be going quiet. I understand that politicians have to play their part and, and if someone has to be the, the bogeyman and that has to be us, well, I can sleep at night knowing that we're speaking the truth about the day-to-day -day pressures our patients are experiencing pressures such a toxic culture that is driving away dedicated doctors who've invested many, many years of their lives and much, much resource as well in, in, into their career to look after their patients. And it doesn't feel safe. Wes Streeting says that he'll stand up to unions if that's what it takes to stand up for patients. And he sounds like he's bracing himself for clashes over pay and maybe much else. There's no shortage of professional bodies representing pretty much everyone in every part of the NHS. You've got the trade unions, you've got the Royal Colleges, you've got different layers of management voice from you know, NHS confederations to NHS providers. Well, where's the patient voice in all of this? It's so much weaker than the voice of the professions. And sometimes those professions are exercising you know, professional vested interests which is ultimately their job representing staff, but it's my job to represent patients and patients' interests. And of course, staff want, often want the best thing for patients, but there are times when sensible reforms are met with opposition because it doesn't work always in favour of vested interests or the status quo. You're listening to Labour's Plan for Power with me, Paul Waugh, Chief Political Commentator of The Eye. Our team of expert journalists get to the truth with their reporting, bringing you incisive news, features and analysis and a range of different subjects, from politics to your family finances. To get the full story for 40% off, you can try out a subscription for less than £4 a month. That's 12 months of award-winning journalism. And you'll get a free book voucher as well. 
To sign up and save, head over to inews.co.uk slash pod to get this deal. One area where Labour plans to offer change is in restoring the idea of a family doctor, giving patients the chance to see the same GP with every appointment. Katie Bramall-Stainer, chair of the BMA's GPs committee, says there are some things to welcome in Labour's plans, not least reducing admin and emphasising face-to-face consultations. There are some good noises coming out and some nice broad principles, but There's not much detail yet, and so I think we're looking forward to finding out what that detail is and getting into the nitty-gritty because, my goodness, the the profession is on its knees and we are hemorrhaging GPs. We've got over 2,200 full-time GPs have walked away since 2015. So we're not on strike, but you could almost say in slow motion the profession has been walking away. But like many doctors, she says that the government's focus on two-week targets to see a GP may be misplaced. GPs are seeing between one in two and one in three of their local population every single month. So it's not about access, it's about capacity. And the status quo isn't working. It's breaking GPs, it's breaking their staff. Actually, we need quality, not quantity. We need really effective triage and focus on continuity of care with really good IT setup. That's the way we're going to keep our patients well, keep them out of hospital uh, and make the difference to communities. She's also pleased that Streeting appears to have listened to GPs who were worried about the idea of tearing up the contract and of ending their practice-based model. And Streeting sounds like he's listening. There simply aren't enough GPs and despite the fact that GPs are providing around a million more appointments now than they did pre-pandemic, it doesn't alter the fact that demand is growing and supply of GPs isn't catching up. We can also alleviate the burden on GPs in terms of how they're spending their time in a way that gives GPs greater job satisfaction, gives patients the quality of service that they deserve and improves patient outcomes in the process. Uh, If you look at the measures that GPs are judged on, the so-called QOF measures, quality of outcome uh, framework, there are loads of things in there that tie GPs up in bureaucracy and red tape. Anita Charlesworth of the Health Foundation says that not just primary care, but public health needs a boost after a decade of underinvestment. And, she points out, it's very cost-effective. Help to stop people smoking, help to lose weight, sexual health services, health visiting services for children under five. All of those services have found, been found in research to be highly effective, highly efficient. Yeah? In fact, the return to those services is about three to four times as much as the return to a classic treatment. As a former Treasury official... Charlesworth also says it's time to change the way government classifies spending on health prevention. That could mean spending on things like sexual health services or health visitors for young children could actually be protected from cuts. One of the things that we've been trying to think about is, are there, if you like, some commitment devices that we could adopt to help politicians to match the reality of some of their decisions to the rhetoric about prevention and and help them to do that, but also provide some accountability for following through. At the moment, we have day-to-day running costs and capital clearly marked out in public spending. We'd like to add a third category, which is that prevention spending. And 
get government then to set clear targets for that prevention spending and report on that and monitor that. One key way to ease the pressure on hospitals is not just to improve primary care, but also social care. Yet recent political history has not been kind to those who want to grasp this particular nettle. During the 2017 general election, Theresa May floated an idea of dealing with care costs that was swiftly dubbed the dementia tax. And when, during the election campaign, she uttered this infamous line... Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Many felt that the policy had cost the Tories the election. The real problem is that nothing really has changed on this issue, under both main political parties. In fact, even at the creation of the NHS, Nye Bevan could see the looming problem of an ageing population. One of the chief sources of our, of our troubles here in Britain is the increasing demand made upon hospital facilities by the aged sick. One of the great problems of modern civilization. So, what would Labour do? Well, its current plan for social care is focused on fixing the immediate crisis through higher wages and better conditions to boost staffing. Keir Starmer's sister Jo is a care worker and deputy leader Angela Rayner worked in care homes too. So for Labour, the personal really is the political on this particular issue. But the big missing part of Labour's plans is any specifics about longer-term funding and structural reform. Andy Burnham still believes in the vision of a national care service that he set out at the end of New Labour's time in office. I'm out there as saying I would like to see uh, social care provided on NHS terms. You know, it, will, it is difficult to, to make a reform of that, of that kind. But what I would say is that this is a journey, isn't it? You can't do everything overnight. But if you start by kind of bringing the workforce together as one workforce and then you start to um, put social care in a different position within the system, I think in time it might take you to a, a way of thinking of social care as being fully integrated within the NHS budget. I appreciate it's difficult, but I haven't kind of moved away from saying that in some, some point of this century, I would like to see social care fully provided on NHS terms. And I also feel that if we are truly to rise to the challenges of the 21st century, we have to, at some point, arrive at a situation where people with dementia receive exactly the same uh, experience uh, as people with cancer. But for some in Labour, the sheer cost of the Burnham plan looks unaffordable. Sally Warren, a former senior official in the Department of Health and now Director of Policy at the King's Fund think tank, says that what the phrase National Care Service actually means has changed. Now I think the National Care Service, as Labour health and care leaders talk about it, is much less about, is it free at the point of use? It might, it could be. Over decades, it might not be. It's much more about trying to say, we think the social care sector needs the brand visibility that something like the NHS has. It would involve some clear national standards for providers in terms of quality and financial performance, national standards about the workforce, so minimum pay requirements, broader terms and conditions, thinking about training and support, but also really clear national standards about what I as a consumer or somebody who needs social care can expect from the National Care Service. She's also keen to stress that social care is not just about older people. 
One of the important things to reflect with social care when we talk about funding reform, when we talk about how to improve its quality, is that quite a lot of people end up thinking this is about older people. But actually, working age adults also draw on social care a lot. So when you look at how much the state pays for social care, it's actually split 50-50 in terms of spending between working age adults, those between 18 and 64, and those who are over 65. So we shouldn't just be thinking this is about older people in care homes or in their own homes. This is about working age adults who will have quite different needs. They'll be thinking, how can I be supported to work? Because I want to contribute to the economy. I want to contribute to society. I'm raising my family whilst living and managing my disability. Matthew Taylor of the NHS Confederation is sceptical that we'll get more detail from Labour or the Tories on social care funding reform sometime soon, despite the urgency of the problem. No party will talk about this seriously between now and the election. I absolutely guarantee you that. But all we can do is hope that the parties have got a plan in their back pocket, which they'll unveil soon after the election. So they've got enough time for that to bed down and be accepted uh, before we get to (laughs) the election after that. Wes Treating tells the eye that he too wants to move on from the political battles over social care and even gives his first hint that he's willing to work with the Tories. I think like the NHS, if we're serious about building a really great quality social care system for the 21st century, we're looking at a 10-year plan to do that. There are some, I think, immediate challenges that have to be gripped. The crisis in the workforce, the struggle that employers have to recruit and retain the staff they need, the struggle that families have when you know using their own care budgets to find the overnight carers or the PAs and a wide range of other staff that disabled people need to live their lives with the freedom, the dignity, the quality of life any of the rest of us want. You know, I really hope that we can build the kind of national consensus around social care that we've had for most of the last 75 years on the NHS. And I am desperately trying to avoid falling into the same trap that other politicians have over more than a decade now, of torpedoing in other people's ideas and just leaving social care reform ground to a halt because that's what the Tories did to us when David Cameron torpedoed Gordon Brown and Andy Burnham's white paper towards the National Care Service. That's what the Labour Party did to Theresa May in the 2017 election campaign, which cost her lots of votes in that manifesto of misery she put forward. And the Tories have been torpedoing themselves now. I mean, Boris Johnson, I thought, sounded quite sincere when he started talking about social care. It's not often I use Boris Johnson and sincere in the same sentence, but he did seem to want to be the one who changed things. And now the Tories have long grasped his reforms. So we can't keep on allowing bad politics to hold back social care. As well as being free at the point of use, another key feature of the National Health Service is that it's very firmly national, with a capital N. And Nye Bevan famously announced that the sound of a dropped bedpan in Tredegar, his hometown, should reverberate around the Palace of Westminster. But will Labour devolve power within the NHS? Or will it be tempted to impose new central targets? Keir Starmer has announced he'd reinstate targets for things like ambulance response times to cardiac arrests within seven minutes and return to the target of 95% of all A&E patients being seen within four hours. But some in the NHS privately worry that such Blair-era targets are outdated, would need much more funding than currently offered and would waste money better spent elsewhere. 
So is streeting setting the NHS up to fail by reaching for levers that are 20 years old? Or will he finesse them in office and allow for more local control? And here's our Melbourne. I mean, it's a fool's errand to believe that you can run the National Health Service employing one and a half million people or whatever it is from an office in Whitehall. And I would say the job of the centre is to set the framework, to set the overall objectives and to make it permissible for local health leaders, clinicians and managers to bring about the changes that are needed in their local communities. So that was the reason I introduced NHS Foundation Trusts, which, if you like, were an attempt to move beyond centralised control to much local, more local control. And I would hope that Wes would want to drive that still further for, for, this, for this generation. Wes Streeting is more than aware of the Bevan bedpan problem. I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that one person sat behind one desk in the Department for Health and Social Care can be the saviour of the National Health Service. I do not have a messiah complex. What I do believe and what gives me great inspiration and hope is that there are remarkable people working at every layer of the NHS who are coming up with good ideas, who are improving the way the NHS works for the benefit of patients, but they're the exception, not the norm. And one of the reasons I want to become the Health and Social Care Secretary is to win power in order to give it away. I want those consultants and nurses on the front line to know that when they see inefficiencies within the service, when they think that it could be designed differently to get patients through faster and deliver better patient outcomes, that they've got the freedom to get on and make those changes. I want those entrepreneurs that are coming up with cutting-edge treatments and technologies to know that when they come up with a great idea that can deliver better outcomes for patients and better value for the taxpayers' money, they're not going to struggle to get through the front door of the NHS. We're going to be holding the door wide open and encouraging them to come in. You need an approach to government which breaks down those barriers to people getting on with the job. But among all the most acute shortages in the NHS and social care at the moment, Perhaps the most telling is a shortage of hope. Time and again in interviews for this podcast, the need for hope was the most common theme. People want clear staging posts to show progress in the first term of a new government and worked up plans ready to go from day one. The BMA's Katie Brummel-Stainer say staff deserve to know sooner rather than later what Labour's detailed plans are in order to implement them smoothly and quickly if need be. Certainly, the workforce needs hope and it needs a light at the end of the tunnel. That light at the end of the tunnel is fragile and it can be blown out. And we need more detail and we need to work with the the Labour Party uh, and indeed any other party in terms of what their plans are. And the egg timer is running out. So we don't have a lot of time. We know that manifestos will come out next summer. But that's probably too long. We, we need something sooner. We need a little bit more, uh, need to flesh out this plan so we can start engaging with it. Labour insiders quietly signal that while policy already announced will be fleshed out in the manifesto, there really won't be any new major spending announcements on health or social care before the election. So the real battle for the NHS may play out after the election, behind closed doors. First in decisions on public sector pay, and then in Rachel Reeves's first spending review the Treasury's three-year cross-government plan due in 2025. 
But Matthew Taylor, who knows more than most what it's like to work in Number 10, suggests that the low expectations of any new government may work in their favour. The NHS confederation that he leads is strictly neutral on politics. But as a former head of Tony Blair's policy unit, I asked him for his personal view on what was the most striking difference between Labour now and Labour when it was on the edge of power a generation ago. In 96, we were arguably a bit more kind of polished, maybe a bit more charismatic, a bit more kind of exciting than the current Labour opposition might be. But I think if I look back to that time, there was also a certain arrogance about us. There was a kind of view which was that the only real problem with the country was that the wrong people were running it. And once the right people were running it, things would be okay. I sense in the current opposition a a pretty deep understanding of how great the problems of this country are. You do also suffer when you go into power with very, very high expectations. So maybe in a kind of strange way, if Keir Starmer does win an election, but with a public that is less, much less enthusiastic than they were for, for Blair or Obama, maybe in some ways that gives them an advantage. And where Streeting tells me he's up to the task ahead. Well, one of the reasons I want to become the health and social care secretary is because I, I feel the same emotional attachment to the NHS. It, it saved my life a couple of years ago when I had kidney cancer. I also see, frankly, how the NHS lets people down. And I've got plenty of other examples in my own family and within my own constituency caseload of an NHS that isn't reaching people on time, isn't giving people the care that they deserve and isn't the envy of the world. So so taking the NHS from the worst crisis in its history, getting it back on its feet and fit for the future is a daunting task. But if it's the only thing I ever achieve for the rest of my life, then it will, you know, it been a life well lived and, and time in politics well served. Thanks for listening to the iPodcast, Labour's Plan for Power. If you liked it, do please leave us a nice review on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps other listeners to find us and supports our in-depth reporting. This podcast was produced and edited by Julia Webster. Next time, we'll look at the party's plans to win back the Red Wall.